tonight is March 16th, and uh, we're going to be in John 8, at least as a place to start, about the sun setting you free. Uh, if you'll pick up with me in John 8, starting in verse 31. This is on page 1188 in the Thompson chain. If you're flipping in a different Bible, you'll start in the New Testament with Matthew, move through Mark, Luke, and end up in John. It says, To the Jews who had believed in Him, Jesus said, If you hold to My teaching, you are really My disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, this is something that I hear people quote, and I, I know that they don't understand it when they quote it. Most of us never think of ourselves as being anything other than free, especially growing up as uh, men or women in this country. We don't think of ourselves as captive to anything. Before I came into Christ, if you had told me that I was a slave to something or that I was not free, I'd have found some way to prove to you that that was not true. I thought even from the time I was 13 or 14 years old, because I was physically mature like a man, that... I could do anything that I wanted to do and uh, that I didn't submit to anything. And yet when I reflect on my life, I found out that something Jesus is going to tell these people was true of me. There were things in my life that I didn't want to do that I kept doing. And I grew up in church. I'd been baptized I don't know how many times. One time I was baptized in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And the guy that went into the baptismal before me had purple hair. And it turned the waters purple, you know. <laughs> kind of funny. The old man, the preacher who performed the service was in a white gown, you know. It turned his gown purple. <laughs> I went in a dry center and came out a wet center. I'll be honest. I went through a lot of religious things in my life without experiencing the freedom that Jesus promised here. He said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Listen to the people's answer to him. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If, Abra if you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things... Your own father does. One more line, then we'll move on. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. There's a lot in this. This is a mouthful. Jesus is proclaiming to people who believe in him that there's a possibility that they're not free. Because if you continue to sin, then it's a slave master over you. We live in a time period where more than 80% of this nation claims to be Christian. That means they're supposed to be set free from the bonds of sin. It means we're supposed to be set free from the bonds of sin. And yet, we see that there's a vast disparity between what we say about ourselves and what the reality is. You can't have the kind of divorce rate we have in our country and it be compatible with 80% Christian. You can't. You can't have the kind of abortion rate that we have and 80% of our country be Christian. There is a problem. We profess and we don't live. And these Jews were not much different. They believed that because of their ancestry, because their forefathers had served God, that they were free and that they had never been slaves to anybody. And they even insinuate that the man who's telling them this might himself be illegitimate. Isn't it funny how when you press people about something that's close to their heart, you can hit a nerve? you ever been just kind of joking around, not meant anything by it, and made a comment to somebody and got a really uh, visceral response? And you realize, wow, I must have hit a nerve, huh? Jesus is implying to these people that they're slaves, and they all but call him a bastard. Isn't that interesting? 
we got a guy standing in front of him that's been healing the sick, raising the dead, doing all kind of wonderful things, and they can just insult him when he's trying to help them. I want to tell you a little bit about my life. When I was much younger, I was raised in an environment where I believed that because my parents were Christian, because I was baptized, because I was a church-going young man, that I had never been a slave to anybody. Now, the reality is there were things that were prevalent in my life that I had no control over. Violence was the order of the day. I mean, Jesus said, if somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn the other to them. Friend, if you slap me on the cheek, you better duck, you know? And he said, well, that's, that's what the Bible says, but we all have to, we have to live in this flesh. And I found every reason in the world to turn God's grace into a license for immorality. And I gathered around me people, teachers, who did the same thing. You can find whole denominations, whole churches full of this today. And something happened. Something happened to me that was unique. Actually, lots of things that happened. We find out that the events of our life were ordered for a reason. The times and places where you find yourself sitting somewhere listening to a message, where you run into somebody at a truck stop, where you had a teacher who said something to you and it stuck with you for years and you think it's a coincidence. Let me tell you from Matthew something that happened in my life. In Matthew 7, that's the first book in the New Testament, 7th chapter, this phrase was piercing to me. A guy came and preached in a church that I was in and he didn't happen to be a part of the denomination that I was. I found out something about people. We like to go to churches where we know exactly what they're going to say before we get there. We like to know what they believe before we walk in because then there's very little chance that somebody's going to challenge you. Very little chance that you're going to hear something that you're not prepared to deal with. God is the kind of God that will put you on the spot so that you have to deal with what is at hand. There's a valley in the Bible. It's called Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means valley of decision. God said He would meet with His people in that valley. God will put you in a position where you have to take an honest assessment of your life and deal with Him. Because we spend all of our lives avoiding that moment. We spend most of our lives doing whatever it takes to avoid God's bright spotlight into the dark places in our lives. We gather around us people that like us, that tell us good things about ourselves. We usually go listen to preachers that have nothing but... Have you ever been to a funeral where somebody said, the guy laying in this box was a wretched human being? you never heard that, have you? Have you ever heard somebody stand at a funeral and say, bless his heart, brother so-and-so, really wasn't a brother. I don't have much to say to you other than don't end up where he's going. <laughs> you never heard anything like that, have you? What do you hear at every funeral you've ever been to? Oh, he's a good man, loved his wife, loved his kids, and you know, in the resurrection or in that one day, he'll write, you know that's not true. Well, why is it that that's what you hear, if that's not what's true. I found out from reading John 8, which I, I stopped short, Jesus looked right at these people and He said, Hey, I tell you what I hear from my Father. You do what you hear from your Father. He goes right on and says, I could say the things that you do, but then I'd be a liar, like you. Jesus said that? Jesus was very direct. He'd get along with us guys very well. When I say guys, I mean all of us. He could look you in the eye and tell you the truth. He didn't feel a need to soften it so that it was more palatable to you. But we do, don't we? And we like to be around people that don't tell us exactly what they're thinking. Have you ever walked up to somebody, shook their hand, and they said, good morning, and they said, no, it's not a good morning? Or, hey, how are you? And they really told you, and you, <laughs> you, you ran the other, hey, how are you? Oh, i got a pint of fluid in my back, and my leg hurts. You run the other way. We are full of pleasantries in our lives that don't really mean anything. Jesus was not like that at all. There's one purpose in this gospel and I'll get back to Matthew 7 in a minute. And that is to move you to the left or to the right. God never intended for you to hear His Word and stay somewhere in the middle. This is why the book of Revelation says, I wish that you were hot or you were cold because you're lukewarm and I want to spew you out, is what King James says. In our vernacular, that means exactly what you think it means. You make God want to puke when you are neither hot for Him nor cold. It, does it surprise you that God would rather see somebody cold, anti-God, than somebody stuck right in the middle? You ever wonder why that might be? I know because I was right in the middle. I was dead in the middle. I lived one way on Sundays and another way. I lived like hell all the way to heaven. I mean, I, th I thought that I could do that. 
You know why God hates it when you're in the middle? Because young women like Nicole, young people, people in general, get a chance to see your life and be confused by it. You ever wonder why preacher's kids are usually the worst? It's because they hear their daddies stand up and preach on Sunday morning and then they see how their daddy lives on Sunday night and it causes a problem. See, when somebody's in the middle, it's a message of confusion and hypocrisy. Jesus was never in the middle. And when you sat and talked to Jesus, He would not leave you in the middle. What did He tell these people in John 8? He said, you have a father and you do what He says and I have a father and I do what He says. You know what? There's not a third option. You're either children of God or you are children of... There's only one other alternative. He goes on and tells them, your father's the devil. He's been a liar since the beginning. Now he said, oh, that's those bad Jews. I have news for you, friends. Everybody in humanity falls into one category or the other. You say, oh, but they're good people. No, it makes you feel better to say they're good people. The Bible says that they're not. And when I say they, I mean you. I mean me. You fall into one category or the other. Well, we better find out how you fall in one category or the other. I bet you've heard most of your life, you just believe on Jesus, right? Are you surprised to find out that James, the book of James, tells you, says, oh, you believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons do and they tremble at His name. See, I believed that because I acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ, because I believed that God was who He said He was, and because I believed His Word, I thought, hey, that's all right. I'm a Christian. I could tell you the day I was baptized and the day I walked in aisle. But there was a problem, and it's found in Matthew 7. You can turn there with me if you like. It's Matthew 7:15. Watch out for false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruits, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I was sitting next to a young lady I was sleeping with, and the man was preaching this at me, wearing sandals and blue jeans. I don't know how they let him in our church, but they did. And when he said this, I'll be honest, the very first thought that hit me, very first thought was, she's hearing this. This is going to mess up a good thing. You know, it's really, that was my very first concern was, she's going to be convicted by this, and that will mean certain things will stop. But then it began to sink into my spirit. Something hit me. See, because I was supposed to be, I would tell you I was a Christian. I thought I was a Christian. I had a pastor that was telling me I was a Christian. But something was striking me kind of odd about this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I tell you what, I could tell you that Jesus died. I could tell you he was resurrected. I could tell you the day I was born again, supposedly. There I walked in aisle. But you know what I could not tell you I was doing? The will of the Father. Jesus said, only he who does the will of my Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. That scared me to death. I began to think about it and I got mad. I mean, that this bothered me because this was something new. It was not something I was used to hearing in the church that I was in. And the gentleman flipped through a couple pages of Scripture and I was not real interested in what he had to say at this point. He turned to First John. He said, if you... Look right at me, my God. Look right at me and said, if you say you have fellowship... There's 900 people there. Why did he pick me up? Right? That's what I was thinking. If you say you have fellowship with the Father and you walk in darkness, you lie and you don't practice the truth. Now, not only was this guy messing up this good thing that I had going, but now he's calling me a liar in front of 900 people. At least that's how I felt. Well, I'd never been a slave to anybody, right? Just like these Jews. Nothing mastered me, right? Except anger, except rage. I took off for the front of the church. I was going to beat up a pastor in front of all of the people there. Now, a youth pastor tackled me in the aisle. Thank God he was... name was Keith Biggs. He's still serving God, I believe. But gave me a chance to calm down. And I had a chance to reflect on this. 
I began to realize something. I was not what I thought that I was. This really bothered me because that meant that most of the people in my life that were surrounding me were not what they said they were. See, because all of us that sat on the same pew, all of us that read the same Scripture, all did the same things on Friday and Saturday night. Boy, it made me uncomfortable. Really upset me. One time I was wearing a Jesus tie tack because the school I went to, that was a popular thing to do. And one of my buddies, his name's Austin Saunders, last I heard he was on the radio in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, turned to me and he said, why are you wearing that? And I realized something. I say I'm one kind of tree, but I'm bearing the wrong kind of fruit. See, I had been with Austin in the French Quarter the weekend before. He'd been there, he'd seen all the things that I did. I'd seen all the things that he did, and now he saw me wearing a Jesus tie tack, and it was offensive to him. In his mind, that was hypocritical, and it was. That cut me to the core. God provided an opportunity for me to begin to realize there's bondages in my life that I didn't know were there. I need help with this. I had spent a lot of time gathering people around me to help me feel better about my life. I didn't know that's what I was doing, but it's what I was doing. Jesus said that if you've met the Son, the Son will set you free. And that if He sets you free, you're free indeed. You know what this means? This means that if you've really met Jesus, nothing has mastery over you. That was hard for me. Because I was beginning to realize since lots of things had mastery over me, I must not really have met the Son. Uh, that's a hard statement, isn't it? I said, well, who are you to judge? Doesn't Matthew 7 say, judge not lest you be judged? Boy, isn't that a, that's a scripture everybody can quote, isn't it? I worked with this old car salesman, used car salesman, who from time to time would give somebody a favorable deal if they perform uh, kind deeds for him. Every negative thing you could think of. He'd trade you a little dope for a better deal on a car. He'd trade all kinds of things. And when I was born again, my whole life changed and I was talking to him about it, you know. He said, ah! Don't judge lest you be judged. The one verse the man could quote in the Bible. Don't judge lest you be judged. That's in the same chapter that says you will recognize them by their fruit. So which is it? Do we not judge or do you recognize them by their fruit? Friends, I'm not judging anybody here today. I'm just asking you, look at the fruit in your life. See if we are what we say we are. You know, there's a sign above the door in this church that says, perform out there what you've practiced in here. You know why? I've realized that most people walking around that call themselves Christians don't live like they're Christians. What a confusing message. I'm not telling you that I'm perfect. I'm certainly not. I'll even let you get close enough to me to see that I'm not perfect so you can also see God working in my life. Anyway, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed, right? Turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel. It's not such an easy thing to be set free from something. When I was a kid, I remember when I was a very young kid, I remember thinking, I need to quit cussing. I had a mouth like a sailor from the time I was about seven. Uh, I was introduced to a lot of things very young. I'm sure none of you can relate to that. You've been holy all of your lives. But uh, I had a buddy that wasn't like me. I mean, he was straight-A student. He did what his father told him to do. Everything that I was not, he was. And uh, I remember that I talked like a sailor, and he, he didn't. And I was beginning to realize this was inconsistent with what I said that I was. So I got an idea. I said, you know what? Every time I say a curse word, I'll do push-ups. Eventually, I'll get sick of doing push-ups. This will train me not to curse. Matthew was there. I could do over 100 push-ups, but I could not quit cursing. <laughs> you know, every attempt that I made to restrain the flesh in my life didn't work. I was in a position where something had mastery over me, but I didn't recognize it. I just knew that the good that I wanted to do, I couldn't do. In 1 Samuel 5, we see that the ark of God... By the way, the ark of God was a box. You remember from seeing Indiana Jones that this box had two poles on it and it was meant to be carried by four men. This box had in it the broken law of God, the manna of God, 
uh, and Aaron's staff that budded. You say, oh, well, why is all that important? Basically, this box represented the very presence of God. And it was portable. And it was portable on men's shoulders. This was beginning to teach mankind something. God did everything for a reason. He's a very patient teacher. He was teaching people that we were supposed to carry the presence of God on our shoulders. When you claim to be a Christian, what that should mean to people, Christian means Christ-like, is that you're carrying around the presence of Christ with you. It's kind of inconsistent with some of the things that you might see people who say they're Christians do, but that's, that's what it was supposed to represent. Well, we're at a place in 1 Samuel 5 where the ark of God has fallen into enemy hands. Now, everybody knows that the Philistines were an ancient enemy of Israel. David went out and killed Goliath, chopped off his head, and carried it around with him for a while, showing people, look, God can overcome the Philistines. Well, we're at a time period now where the very ark that symbolized God's presence has fallen into the hands of the Philistines. You'd think that's a bad thing, wouldn't you? I mean, how can we let God's presence be there with the ungodly? Watch what happens. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it to Ebenezer, to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Dagon was a giant statue. And Dagon had the body of a man and his upper torso was a fish. Now, I don't know why people worship the things that they do. People worship... A, in India, they've got 12 national gods. You can go bow down to a rat if you really... That's your deal. You know, if that's what you want to do, you can follow a cow around, call it mama because it produces milk, think it's a reincarnated uh, ancestor, and do unclean things with the excretions from its body. Uh, they do that. There's, all over the world, things are worshipped. Well, the Philistines worship Dagon. And Dagon, the basic thought behind him was, hey, this is the god of fertility and the god of life. Uh, fish, because they were nomadic people who uh, were seafarers and they got fish out of the sea. And the body of a man because, hey, who wants to worship just a fish, right? <laughs> Although some of us are at the altar of uh, fishermen occasionally. But I'm reminded that as soon as Jesus went away from the apostles, they were out fishing. So that being said, we've got the ark there in the temple to Dagon. We have the very presence of God in the shadow of this foreign deity. And watch what happens. Verse 3, When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back up in his place. But the following morning when they arose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. This story teaches a lot of things. But one thing that it teaches is how you get freedom in your life. See, these Philistines thought they would take the presence of God and they would bring it captivity into their God's house, the house of Dagon. And they would put this little box, you know, the ark was gay big, you know, before their great big God to show how superior the Philistines were to the Jews. But this little bitty ark, when placed in the presence of a great big deity, knocked it down, knocked off its head and its hands. Now, I don't know, but I would suspect that if any two of you men in here got into a fight, you would prefer for your hands and your head not to be severed from your body, right? What I learned when I began to see this when I began to see that I had bondages in my life, was that all of my effort in the world produced no help. I could do push-ups until I was blue in the face and couldn't quit cursing. I could do everything that I could to think pure thoughts and not be involved in some of those physical sins that I had been involved in, and it didn't help. I could change the surrounding that I was in, go to a new school, do something different so that I was not the kid in the center of the circle fighting with some other kid. I could do all of those things, and yet it followed me wherever I went, whatever I did. I couldn't get out of the shadow of Dagon. But the moment that the first time in my life I truly encountered the presence of God, all of those things that had had mastery over me got knocked down on their face. And there are times that I ran right back to it and stood it up. But as long as I allowed the presence of God room in my life, He'd knock it down again until its head and hands were broken off. 
I don't know what it is that may cause you problems in your life, but I do know that if you can bring yourself into the presence of God, He'll break its head and its hands off. You don't have to be subject to anything. In Christ, you really don't have to be subject to anything. We choose to be sometimes, but you don't have to be. Turn with me to Luke real quickly. Or not so quickly, it don't matter. I, you don't have to turn. I rarely ever lie when I preach. <laughs> in Luke, in the 10th chapter, we see a story. This is a story that is in some ways reflective of every human being that you've ever known. Remember that 80% of our nation claims to be a Christian. That means if we have 100 people in here, 80% of you will claim to be Christians. Common sense tells you when you look at the fruit on the tree, 80% of us can't be Christians. Now, many of you are fortunate. I don't know you. I don't know anything about you, so I can't be throwing stones at you. Others of you not so fortunate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm picking. What I'm trying to say is, we have this inability. We're like people who are drunk. You ever talk to a drunk man about not driving? What's the first answer they always give you? Yeah, I ain't drunk, you know. That sounds like the voice of experience back there. We're Oh, okay, well, we've got sailors in our midst. Uh, by the way, on that note, when they accused the apostles of being drunk on Pentecost, they didn't say, oh, no, 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 we never. How could you even think that of us? They said, no, we're not drunk as you suppose. It's only 9 a.m. They just said it's too early to be drunk. They didn't say they'd never been drunk. <laughs> what, I, what I'm saying, though, is most people do not have a sober judgment of ourselves. It's as if we're drunk on sin. We think always this has to do with somebody else. We don't have a problem. Look at me. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. But if you stand and look long enough into the Word... The Bible says it's like a mirror. You begin to see, I'm not really okay. See, the gospel was meant to force you to the left or to the right. It was meant really to cut you to the heart so that you'd have to pick a side and get on it. I'm sure nobody in here has ever been misfortunate enough to have been involved in some physical altercation. But the only thing that is worse than actually being involved in a physical altercation is to have a buddy there that does not pick a side. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I had the displeasure one time of God providing a beating for me. And He provided this for me because it would eventually put me on a road to where I could be saved. This beating occurred in front of all of my peer group. And I had some peers there that I would have very much liked to have picked my side. <laughs> and I stood by. You know, When we stand before this Jewish king and we give an account for everything that was done in this body, there's one place you don't want to be. You don't want to be somebody who refused to pick a side. The gospel's meant to move you. Watch how God will help you get moved. In uh, Luke 10, starting in the 25th verse, verse, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in this church, we teach that eternal life is being raised in a body that will never die. But in most churches, you hear this is going to heaven. However you think about it, it's okay with me. The basic question is here, hey, Jesus, what do I got to do? What do I got to do to get in the kingdom of God, right? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. The problem's not usually we don't know what to do, that we lack the power to do it, isn't it? But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Most of us, when confronted with the truth of the Scripture, would like to cloud it in confusion. Well, we can't really do that. I mean, who could live like that? If somebody asked you for your tunic and you gave them your cloak as well, I mean, you'd have nothing. How could you do that? Somebody said, go a mile with me, and the Bible says go two if he asked you to go one. How could you do that? That's not very practical. That's not really what he meant, is it? That's the exact conversation that's going on here. He asked Jesus. Jesus answers him. Then he wants to justify himself. Most of us are not really interested in the truth most of the time. We're looking for the easiest way we can to justify ourselves. 
make ourselves feel better. Have you ever wondered why some people go to church? You know, their wives make them, whatever it may be. Do you know that church attendance in the United States goes up by some 20% at the outbreak of war? You know the highest church attendance day of any day that we have ever had in the United States at any time, as far as numbers of people? It's in the first Gulf War. that surprise you? Isn't that interesting? It's at the start of the ground campaign. Everybody runs to church when there's a problem, right? We're all Christians on Easter and Sunday. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus teaches a parable here, and it's insightful. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. Now, the reason the Bible says he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho is in Jewish thought, Jerusalem was elevated. It was closer to God. And in reality, it is elevated. It's further above sea level than the surrounding areas. This guy is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. There have been times in our lives when we have proclaimed that we were Christians. But our walk showed that in reality, we were descending from the things that we knew were godly down to worldly things. Jerusalem always represents the kingdom of God in the Bible. Jericho represents the kingdom of the world. You know what is interesting about this though, friends? The road from Jericho to Jerusalem, that's the road you want to be on. He's on the right road. He's just headed the wrong direction. You ever been there? You ever been on a long, bumpy ride a little further than you wanted to go? You know? You knew the truth, but you found yourself headed away from the truth. That's where this guy is. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and he went away leaving him half dead. Now, Jennifer in here is pregnant. How could she be half pregnant? Not possible, huh? You're either pregnant or you're not. Isn't that true? Isn't it? Is that true? (laughs) But how do you get half dead? I mean, either you're alive or you're not alive, right? How does somebody get half dead? You remember that the gospel is supposed to be that dividing line that says you're hot and you're cold. Nothing's supposed to be left in the middle. What half dead is, is somebody who's trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And it doesn't work that way. You're considered half dead. You've got a foot in the world already. He's on the right road. He's just headed the wrong direction. He knows the good he's supposed to do, but he's just not doing it. So God provides something for him. Little beating. He said, would God do that? Well, would He kill His son? I don't know. The Bible seems to say that He would. God will let something negative come into your life. In fact, if you love Him, always something negative at some point comes into your life and it refines you. It gives you an opportunity to go, ooh, wait a minute. My life is a fragile thing. Am I living like I should live? My father, uh, I've got more than one father, so forgive me for that, but my stepfather had a place in his life where he believed that he was walking with God and was doing pretty good. Then he got prostate cancer. And you know what? His walk with God got a whole lot more serious after that. Then he had a little heart problem. And you know what? Got a heck of a lot more serious after that. Why do you think that is? Because the fear of judgment was closer and that propelled him into holiness. It's amazing how something that the devil means to harm you can work out for your good. Well, here's something. The devil meant to harm this guy. Meant to beat him. Meant to hurt him. Used wicked men to do it. But God's going to use it for his good. A priest happened to be going down that same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to that place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The reality is that God, because he loves us, will arrange the events of your life. He will order the events of your life to give you every opportunity to get serious about loving Him. Now, this story is really called the Good Samaritan 
The emphasis is on the guy that helps him. But that's not where the story starts, does it? The story starts with a man who's on the right road that's going the wrong direction. Whether you're the good Samaritan that is out shopping, looking for people that you can show kindness to, or you're the man that is on the right road but headed the wrong direction, God's provided the opportunity for both of you. See, Christians are Christians not because of what they believe. We're Christians because of what we do. How do you know a tree? By its fruit. Have you ever walked by a garden? Anybody in here have a garden? No? Matt's going to start a garden. Got dirt? Have ambition? Anybody ever been to a fruit stand? No. When you walk by an apple tree, you don't hear it straining to spit out an apple, do you? No? Ever, ever walk by where they're growing carrots? Seen the earth just straining and grunting and groaning to give a carrot? Christians do things naturally because they love the Lord. And it happens naturally. You don't have to be told to do it. You don't have to be forced to do it. And it's not hard to do. You do it because you love the Lord. You've been shown mercy and you want to show mercy. But a religious person that still has bondages in their life, everything they do to try to produce fruit is a struggle and it's painful. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, then you're free indeed. When we talk about Christianity and talk about living a life of love and living a life of godly action and doing the will of the Father, we're not talking about something that's bondage. See, I stayed away from real Christianity for a long time because all I could think of was all the things that I would give up. <laughs> Christians are no fun. I, I'll be honest, and all you women in here are beautiful. But I thought if I was a Christian married, it meant it had to be to an ugly woman. <laughs> and I thought that because of the pastors that I'd met, if I was a Christian and I was a man, I'd have to have an effeminate little handshake and talk in some kind of wispy, loving tone all of the time. That's what I thought because that's what I saw. I was really surprised to get into the Word and find out that men in the Bible were men. They were just like us. They liked to hunt. They liked to fish. They liked to do all kinds of things that men like to do today. And they loved the Lord with all their heart. I was really excited to find out that God kind of dug pretty women too. I mean... King David was a man after God's own heart. He saw Abigail and his heart started beating. That's why I named my daughter, by the way. I mean, I found out that Christianity was not this boring thing. It was a life of freedom. You're free to do all the good that God's called you to do. You're free to walk away from sin for the first time in your life. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. I'll let you all go here in a minute, but i got a captive audience. I'm between you and the door. You can't get out. <laughs> I was driving to Shell Norco in Laplace, Louisiana. And I was young and full of zeal and not just a whole lot of knowledge. And I was a helper and my journeyman had picked me up uh, at Reeves Supermarket in Baton Rouge, Louisiana at 4 o'clock in the morning. Boy, that takes a miracle for me to get up. So we could get to Shell on time. It's the first time he ever picked me up. And I was an electrician's helper. I was going to Ben Conduit and do every other nasty thing nobody wanted to do. He's driving, you know, and we introduce ourselves and all. And I said, hey, I've been born again. I saw his knuckles get white on the steering wheel right then. And I said, we got at least an hour and a half in the car. I figured I'd tell you about it. <laughs> and a captive audience is not always the best thing. He literally said, look, stop telling me. Don't tell me anymore. I don't, I don't want to hear anymore. I said, well, you've heard now. It's too late. You've got to do something about it. The gospel's meant to move you. Y'all in Second Samuel? Okay, in Second Samuel 22... <laughs> this is David a thousand years before Jesus ever lived and he's singing a song, a psalm. He's prophesying. Uh, for those of you not all that familiar with prophesying, is he's speaking by the Spirit of God and it describes his events in his life, but it more accurately reflects something that was yet to happen. And it's Jesus, really, that it reflects. Starting in 22, verse 1, 2. He said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my Savior. From violent men you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. 
It's an amazing thing about human beings. It's much better to seek the Lord while He's able to be found. Well, no, let me say it like this. Anybody in here that's parents can relate to this. As a parent, would you rather your child come to you and say, Oh, Mommy, Daddy, I did something wrong? Or to have to catch them doing something wrong? For some reason, most of us really have our first real interaction with God when we realize we're in distress of some kind. God has allowed some kind of problem to come into our life and all of a sudden we snap to attention and we're getting right with God. How much better is it, like the child that just comes right away without having to be caught, if you approach God with an open heart right up front without lots of trouble having to come into your life? So when people give testimonies, there's a problem. There's two reactions you can have to it. (laughs) Well, he needed Jesus. I was never that bad. Or somebody that you can't relate to. You know, they... Got born again when they were two. You know, they never had a dirty thought in their life. And you're sitting there thinking, well, anyway. All right. You can tell I can't relate to that side, huh? In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God from His temple. He heard my voice. My cry came to His ears. Something really important that you need to know about God is that the Bible presents Him not as a mean old man with a stick ready to beat you. That's not how the Bible presents Him at all presents Him as a loving, merciful God who would rather show you mercy than show you judgment and is watching the affairs of your life, looking for those who are weak so that He can strengthen them, looking for those whose hearts are fully committed to Him so that He can uphold them. God is all for those that are for Him. It's only those that are against Him that He's against. But cries out and God hears Him. From his temple he heard my voice, my cry came to his ears. The earth trembled and quaked, the foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of His presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. Now, this is obviously imagery. And you know that it's obviously imagery. Somebody is looking, seeing a vision and describing it. This most accurately reflects Jesus, who is being put onto a cross, and the earth gets dark around Him, and God is taking note because a righteous man is being uh, killed. But this is also meant to teach us something. When you are in trouble and you're in distress, and it doesn't matter what it is, anything that has bondage over you that you don't want, and you cry out to Him, He's attentive to your cry. He's looking for the opportunity to fight on your behalf. You can be trapped in the temple of the Dagon, and He'll knock him down and kill him for you. Watch what God does. The Lord thundered from on heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered the enemies, bolts of lightning and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord and the blast of breath from His nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy. One of the first things that all of us would be wise to do is recognize that there's an enemy that's out there that he's powerful and that he has most of the world deceived. The deception that most people have bought into, though, is not not that the devil's wonderful and God is bad. He's much more wise than that. The deception most people have bought into is, I'm okay and you're okay. We all love God. We're all children of God. After all, aren't we good people? But this is something totally different than what the Bible actually presents. The Bible actually presents that there's only two possible sources of your father, two people that you could be, and your actions determine which category you fall into. I ask you to take a moment tonight and think about which category you fall into, not which category your parents think you fall into, not which category you grew up in, not which category some preacher thinks you're a part of. You examine your actions. Are you doing the will of God? Because that's the criteria. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, but they will not inherit Eternal life. Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. That's a tough test to pass, isn't it? Are you doing the will of your Father in heaven? Incidentally, God's will for you 
starts in verse 33. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield to victory. You stoop down to make me great. You broaden the path beneath me so that my ankles do not turn. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back until they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You made my adversaries bow at my feet. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but He did not answer. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Get this. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. What on earth could he be talking about? There are things that have taken advantage of you in your life. They have kept you from knowing the power God wants you to have. They have kept you in bondage to things that you don't want to be in bondage to. And at the slightest bit of presence of God in your life, He trains you for battle. He strengthens you so that you can pursue that which has been against you and you can beat it as fine as the dust of the earth. You can trample it. You can come out on top. The disciples began to get word of this. Jesus sent 72 of them out. He said, hey, don't take any money with you. Don't take anything. Just two of you go out uh, Go out in pairs of two and see what happens. They came back and they were so excited. Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Said, yeah, I gave you power to trample on the lion and the scorpion, all these things. And it was a surprise to them. In Christianity, sometimes we're subject to things because we don't know the power that God has given us. The Bible describes you as warriors. I thought Christians were weak, little effeminate, nerdy type men. The Bible describes Christians as powerful warriors with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. I thought Christian women were ugly, nerdy women. The Bible describes them as beautiful in the apple of God's eye. There is a really different picture of God in the Bible than people have in the world. The one that the world has is not tasteful. It's not something you would desire. The one that the Bible presents is something that real men would strive for. The world has the idea that you can live half dead somewhere between the kingdom of God and somewhere in the world. The Bible presents a totally different picture. You're going to have to serve somebody. You're subject to one or the other. I'd rather be subject to Jesus. In Colossians, the second chapter of Colossians, we see that Jesus has done something for you. And we're going to close here in just a minute. In the second chapter of Colossians, in the 13th verse, it says, When you were dead... In your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What you read in Second Samuel was about Jesus defeating the devil. About Him beating Him as fine as the dust of the earth and training you to do the same. What you read in Colossians is about Jesus making a public spectacle of everything that's ever stood against you. Do you know what a public spectacle is? It's being beaten like a red-headed stepchild in front of the whole world. There is nothing that faces you that you cannot overcome, but it requires one real decision of you. Something that's a little uncomfortable. You have to decide to live for Jesus at all costs or not to live for Him at all. That's not a decision most people like to make. Most of us would like to live for Jesus when it's convenient for us and like to lose our religion when it's convenient for us. We don't have that option. The Bible puts you in one of two categories and you have to decide which one you'll live in. And if you think that you avoid the choice, God makes it for you. I would rather make the choice than have God make it for me because that's a little bit like my parent catching me doing something wrong. I want to encourage you with one last thing and then we're going to close. The Bible presents a scenario where a man named Adam and a woman named Eve, whose name was prior to being named Eve, screwed up. The Bible is pretty well their story of them screwing up and God providing a way for them to be redeemed. And not just them, but all of their descendants. In other words, the Bible starts with the premise that you're pretty fouled up people and me right along with you. And that it's God's desire 
to bring us into a position of restoration. I know when you meet Christians, uh, you're tempted to be this way. Other Christians are this way. We act as if we have it all together. And it's those bad people out there. The Bible starts with the premise that all of us are pretty screwed up people and need God's help. That's where it starts. In fact, every man of God that there had ever been, that had ever stood up at any time, the devil was able to prove pretty fouled up person. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about Abraham and he slept with Hagar or we're talking about David and Lord, all the things David did, you know, or Paul. It does not matter. Every man of God that had ever been had been proven guilty of sin in some way. Until a man named Jesus showed up. The Spirit leads him out into the desert. He doesn't eat for 40 days. It's the weakest point a human being can be. We recently, you know what it's like to have your body weak. The weakest place that this human being could be. Not surrounded by his friends. Not surrounded by the comforts of anything. And the devil didn't send somebody down the food chain to him. He came personally. And he tempted Jesus in every area. And for the first time, we had a human being that was so filled with a love for God, so filled with the Spirit of God, that he stood up and won on every account. And the devil looked for a more opportune time to attack. I'm not suggesting that there's never going to be a time you fail. Every man of God, save one, has failed. What I'm suggesting is that you allow Jesus to truly be in your heart the way you say he is, and he will have the victory for you when you stand in Dagon's temple. He will mount the cherubim and fly when you're surrounded by an enemy stronger than you. He will train your hands for battle. You know what's required of you? It's not required that you win the fight, that you refuse to get out of the ring, and that you refuse to give up. That I can do. I've been on the losing end of some of those ordeals, but what you can't do is just lay down. You have to try. Too many people that claim to be Christians have laid down and given in to the enemy, and we cannot do that. If you are, you're on the right road, but you're headed the wrong way, friend, and it's a bad place to be. Now, I know many of you, and I know your lives, and I'm proud of you. I've heard testimonies about others of you, and I'm proud of that. I encourage you when you leave this place to let what's above that door be true. Perform out there what you've practiced in here. Otherwise, it's lip service. You do no favors to anyone to profess a love to Jesus and then live like hell. In fact, you make God want to puke. You need to make it your ambition every day to leave no room for error. My stepfather says it this way, Son, I'm in the fourth quarter of my life and I want to win. I'm closer now than when I first started. I'm in the fourth quarter of my life. You may not be in the fourth quarter, but there is a God that is watching you. He's watching not because He wants to punish you. He's looking for the opportunity to bless you and you have to decide. He'll put you on the spot to make sure you do. And if he can't do it through a sermon, if he can't do it through somebody who loves you, who's talking to you, he might do it by you being stripped and beaten. It happens. He loves you enough to do it. I encourage you to seek God while he may be found. Thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for loving Jesus. I encourage you to get right with him. He's not a pushover. It's not a joke. He's very real, and he absolutely will burn you. There is no question. And he absolutely will elevate you and love you and take care of you. I'm just a dumb kid. Dumb kid that didn't get a lot of things right. And God has caused me to prosper in every turn for one reason. I'm stupid enough to do exactly what He tells me to do, regardless of the consequence. Y'all stand up. Let's pray.